You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, uh, 3CR Breakfast. All through the week, we uh, bring you the best and most interesting tidbits of news, which you probably will not find in any other place. Uh, the this Today, we're going to hear some voices from uh, last week's Palm Sunday uh, rally that was held on Sunday. It was uh, to talk refugees, talk peace. It was uh, a fairly big uh, rally um, uh, since uh, we've come out of COVID. They travelled up to uh, Park Hotel, which is now empty, and uh, we're going to hear from uh, Reverend Tim Costello that he's he's going to reveal, he did reveal, why the uh, uh, Morrison government decided that it was a good idea to flush out the uh, um, prisoners from these detention centres for refugees uh, because of his fear of losing the election. And Tim Costello actually explains how that actually happens, which is quite interesting. We're go- uh, yeah, so we're going to hear some voices from Palm Sunday, very interesting speeches. Uh, we're going to uh, hear from uh, the Youth Climate Coalition. They had a really fascinating uh, Youth on Mic event during the week, and it was incredibly well organised. What they did was... Uh, invite uh, Labor's Greens and Liberal representatives that uh, are supposedly uh, tasked with looking in, uh, dealing with youth affairs. Amanda Wishmore for Labor, Jordan Steele-Johns for the Greens and the no-show Luke Howarth, who is uh, the, supposedly the Liberals' uh, representative, for, representative for youth. He didn't turn up and they, fascinatingly enough, uh, visualised that by having an empty chair with a light shining on it. And as they pointed out, they did invite all these people six weeks ahead of time but of course, Luke couldn't turn up, didn't have enough time to talk to uh, Youth of Australia. Anyway, it was a fascinating affair and um, I've got a couple of uh, testimonials because they set it up in a way where different people uh, ex- uh, explained their life experience and then asked a question of the uh, politicians. And so there's a couple of those that I've got which are fascinating because not only are they fascinating because they give you an insight into the lives of these young people, uh, but also gives uh, some understanding of how uh, the politicians are answering these questions. Um, the uh, 
there were two things that came out of uh, that particular evening which I thought was particularly interesting, which you may or may not know. But uh, Amanda Wishmore uh, constantly talked about public housing, increasing the public housing spend. She didn't talk about social housing. She talked about public housing, which is something of interest. And uh, the other thing was uh, that uh, Jordan Steele-John was talking about how the Greens are interested in trying to push the age, the voting age to 16. Anyway, that they weren't uh, central to the night, but they were two pieces of information that appeared to be news. Anyway, later on, we're going to hear from Kevin, who wraps up the week, because there's been an awful lot of stuff happening. It's like a rolling sea. And uh, and at the end of the program, we're going to hear from the uh, uh, Chris uh, Smith, Michelle Valentin, Neves, and and Angelica Maldonado, the three representatives of the Amazon Labor Union that had the historic win uh, at the Staten Island warehouse, Amazon warehouse or fulfilment centre as the um, Bezos likes us to call them. Uh, Anyway, uh, they have established or got a vote where the workers at that centre for the very first time have voted that they want union representation and the new union is the Amazon Labor Union and we're going to hear from uh, an event that was put on by Jack Coburn and EWO, the Emergency Workplace Organising. Um, uh, They put on an event last week and uh, to hear how these people uh, organise their grassroots campaign. There's been a lot of uh, interest in this uh, amazing event, uh, very grassroots campaign. Anyway, that's what we're going to do today on Solidarity Breakfast. But before we do, let's hear some important announcements. Join us on May 1st, the International Day of the Working Classes. We're mobilising for workers' rights, decent living conditions, environmental protection, the rights of Indigenous peoples and in opposition to imperialist war and aggression. There'll be speakers, stalls, food and community singing from midday on Sunday, May 1st at Trades Hall on the corner of Ligon and Victoria Street, Carlton. Then, march around the city, assembling from 1.30pm. And leading up to the day, don't forget April 28th from 5pm, the annual eight-hour memorial event opposite Trades Hall. Followed by a 6pm solidarity event, good food, entertainment and speakers. Help us hold the worst federal government in living memory to account. For more information, visit maydayvictoria.com. The Melbourne Mayday Committee is a 3CR supporter. Hey you mob, it's the simple everyday things we can all do that will help protect our families and community from coronavirus. Like wearing a mask when required, catching up outside if we can, keeping indoor spaces well ventilated with windows and doors open as much as possible and getting tested if we feel unwell. Let's keep being COVID safe every day. To find out more, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Are you ready to vote? 
the federal election is on soon. If you've recently turned 18 or have never enrolled before, you have to enrol to vote before 8pm Monday the 18th of April. If you've changed your name or address since the last time you voted, you have to change your details. To enrol, you need proof of ID like a driver's licence or passport or someone who was already on the electoral roll who can confirm who you are. Enrol or change your details on the internet at aec.gov.au or pick up an enrolment form at any Australian Electoral Commission AEC office and return it to the AEC before 8pm Monday the 18th of April. It's our vote and our future. Authorised by the Electoral Commissioner, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. There you go. Lots of important things to uh, note down on your pad. Uh, the uh, We're on uh, 3CR Breakfast with Annie, and uh, like I said, we're going to uh, hear from Tim, Reverend Tim Costello, who was speaking at the Palm Sunday speeches. And if you were wondering why uh, the illustrious leader in uh, federal parliament land decided that uh, uh, imprisoning uh, refugees for nine years, etc., was a bad look coming into the federal election. Uh, uh, Reverend Tim explained. Now, without any further ado, I want to introduce our first guest. We're very fortunate today to have Reverend Tim Costello with us. He's one of Australia's best-known community leaders and his work on social justice issues and ethical leadership. Over many years, Tim has spoken against the cruel treatment of refugees and recently initiated the Set Them Free campaign together with other faith leaders. Thank you. Make Tim please feel welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I want to acknowledge the uh, traditional owners, the elders and their emerging leaders the custodians of this land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them. I want to talk about promises today. The uh, Obama administration made a promise to take some of our people in a swap and over the weekend Joe Hockey's memoirs have come out. Joe Hockey claims that when Trump came to power that promise was going to be broken. Joe Hockey claims that on the last hole when he was playing Donald Trump, he pulled off an amazing putt, 14 metres. Trump was so impressed. That gave Joe the opportunity to say to Trump, keep your promises. Well, reading the triteness of this simply shocked me. Yes, thank you, Joe, that you pulled off that putt. But why were we ever in this situation in the first place? You know, I was up in Manus Island, I'd come back, I saw Dutton, I said to Dutton, based on what Frank Brennan, Father Frank Brennan, Robert Mann, John Mendeu, we'd been writing articles, were saying, you know that the reason there aren't boats arriving is Australia's turn back policy, the ring of steel. You know. Locking people up indefinitely, imposing exaggerated cruelty on them. You can have border security without exaggerated cruelty. That serves no public policy position. Minister Dutton, in charge at the time, didn't disagree. He did agree. It is the turn back. It is not locking up 
people indefinitely causing that exaggerated cruelty. But then his defence was, we made a promise. We made a promise that not one of them will step on Australian soil and we're going to keep that promise. Now the language of promise is the language of ethics. We teach our kids to keep their promises. We say there'll be distrust, terrible consequences if you don't keep your promises. But there's an ethical override. If I promise to rob a bank, if I promise to assault someone and I break my promise, the ethical override is far greater than breaking my promise. The promise to the Australian people that no one will set foot if they'd come from bo on, by boat by 2016, was it? That imposes exaggerated cruelty. And if you break the promise, the ethical applause will be resounding. Well, Peter Dutton wouldn't break his promise. Going into this election, the Morrison government is still promising to us they will keep open the Pacific offshore detention. We say they must break that promise in the name of ethics. The ethics aren't just the cruelty, they're the wasted millions of taxpayers' dollars. They're the degrading treatment of our Pacific neighbours, literally degrading, moving our problem, what we call our problem, onto them. And we know that ethically this will only mean more lives are destroyed if those Pacific Island uh, uh, detention centres stay open. At the moment, Labor is silent on what it will do. Will it close these detention centres? In this election, we demand that Labor make a promise to the Australian people, we are closing those detention centres offshore. The Morrison government is continuing in this election period with its promise that anyone who arrives by boat illegally will be locked up. Labor, it seems, supports that sort of promise. Labor says we'll try and do it, treating people with more dignity, which of course is what the Morrison government says they do. I've been up to the Park Hotel far too many times. I'm so glad people are out, but I know that they have suffered nine years of wasted life, of a terrible existence, being treated cruelly because we don't lock people up, even in hotels here, and treat them with dignity. That promise we call on Labor to break. That promise we call on the Morrison government to break in the name of ethics and the name of the Australian people. Since it is Palm Sunday, let me reflect on my faith. My faith, I do want to influence my politics, but I don't want the reverse. I don't want politics to influence my faith. I say to the Morrison government, with so many Christians from the Prime Minister down, your politics 
the politics of fear and division is completely captured, co-opted, compromised your Christian faith. In my faith, 26 times in the scriptures I take seriously, we are told God's face is seen in the stranger, the biblical language for the refugee. Far more than God's face is seen in my neighbour, who I get on well with, who's my kith and kin. God's face is seen in the refugee. That is the faith that should be inf influencing our politics. I was proud leading Micah Australia to pull together an unusual consortium after another promise was made. After Kabul fell, the Afghan nation was taken over by the Taliban. Prime Minister Morrison initially took 3,000 Afghan refugees, but he made a promise. He said, it's a floor, not a ceiling. We're going to do better. And then he came out with a nonsense announcement that over four years they were taking 10,000 more. We saw through the smokes and mirrors, it was not one additional Afghani refugee place. Even the media fell for it. It was a breach of a promise. We put together, and I know many people here will hold, my, hold their noses when I say this, not just all denominations, but ACC, Scott Morrison's denomination, Australian Christian Lobby, I know many of you will hold your nose, Anglican bishops from Sydney, when I went with ACL and Anglican bishops from Sydney to see Minister Hawke just a week after the religious discrimination bill had failed, Australian Christian Lobby said to Minister Hawke, we're telling our 180,000 people in our data database to vote Labor because they will abolish TPVs. Australian Christian Lobby said that. The Bishop from North Shore, Sydney Anglican, said, I've never been to Canberra before. There was never an issue important enough for me to come. This is the first time. He said, our people are so upset that you've broken your promise about taking additional Afghan refugees. I saw Alex Hawke go white. I saw him jump up agitated. I thought to myself, you've got to really work hard in government to get a North Shore Sydney Anglican bishop upset. And here they had done it. Well, that sort of pressure along with it, the Afghan community and the refugee uh, community saw in the budget an announcement, you might have missed it, of 16,500 additional Afghan places at the cost of $650 million. 16,500 additional Afghans who will have a chance. Alex Hawke was so worried that 20 minutes after Josh Frydenberg had sat down, I was giving a speech actually here in Melbourne on budget night, my phone goes off, it's Alex Hawke. He says, Tim, thank you. Your pressure worked with the others and they really are additional places this time, Tim. We had been calling for 20,000, but at least a promise had been kept. That, in my view, is an example of faith, certainly across the Christian spectrum, influencing, faith, uh, influencing politics. 
the politics of the refugee, the stranger in who we see God's face. Let me finish by saying, in addition to abandoning offshore detention, in addition to both sides, and we call on them, to actually promise no more detention where people can lose their lives for nine or ten years. The New Zealand option, by the way, was on the table when Ju Julia Gillard was Prime Minister. Why nine years of destruction of their lives? Because in their ethical framework they said we had a promise not one would ever set on foot on shore, New Zealand's a back door. Well, the last promise I want us to ask of both sides of politics is this, that both will now promise to release the Mugagupuran family, the Biloela family, right now. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Thank you. 
Abed, Abed, Abed. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on the 3CR. And uh, that was uh, uh, some voices from uh, the uh, Palm Sunday uh, event that happened last Saturday. Uh, I I had another piece for you, but I uh, haven't quite been able to get it to happen. So um, maybe what I could do is play you a few a uh, uh, little bit of uh, music and I'll I'll get it in order We dance like New Year's Eve we we dance from sheer relief Whoa, everything must change 
bitch, you projected a size with nothing of the sort. Sold us so short, put down a champagne, no toast to the legacy. And all the propaganda of prosperity, that's what a machine does, and they don't need therapy. You turn us into a nation of haters, buy right a pizza, believe in whatever kept you leader. Dog whistle through the speakers, see who bites it. Notice the hell of a lot of people liked it. An ethical choice is simpler if you price it, conquer by dividing. That's where you admired him. Unless pushed, we would never have retired him. Fucking pirate history will damn him. Once it seemed like nothing could damage him. Sasha Liuji, the way Shang Tsung, crook. You got your ass played in Mandarin. I know we're feeling this like the rapture, and I can tell who this mood is failing to capture. It's like somebody finally did like that match up and burn down the parliament. Learn from the argument, can't be nonpartisan. When you're an artisan, you put your heart in it. That's not even a half of it. Like my man said, we're talking butter and bread. Better if his words were never uttered again. Mostly vindictive. Who could have predicted? Just a few tax breaks to keep us all addicted. The dickhead, dictator, leader, imitator made me feel immature when I said, I hate you. Did you read the paper the day I? After I hear the laughter, I'll read it to you. It starts with M and Q and ends with you. No broader view for the people on your ship who you used to call crew. Huh, that's typical. Now I guess it's difficult for the type of person only thinks of individual. No residual. You'll see our resilience. Take it back and ball ahead for the pavilion. Today, 
We have Adil Salman, who is the president of the Islamic Council of Victoria. Uh, let's start with you, um, Adil. Thank you. Good afternoon. Welcome all. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. I greet you in the greeting of peace, which is peace be upon you all. We stand here a few days after these poor souls that have been held for up to nine years in, the, in these hotel camp prisons were released. And we were supposed to feel grateful to the Australian government for releasing these people. These people have been treated as criminals. They were given less rights than criminals who are actually convicted of crimes. It is shameful. It is shameful. Can you imagine being held up in a detention centre or a hotel or any place where your freedom is denied and you have no hope, no hope of freedom, no hope of living a normal life, no hope of seeing your loved ones, no hope of ever, of ever feeling safety, safe and secure in a land that you came to because you thought, you thought that Australia would be humane, would be welcoming, would treat you with respect, would treat you with minimum humanity. What a shock these people have encountered. I want to talk about three things very quickly and my, my talk will be very short. One is immoral and misleading language. Number two is blatant, naked racism and discrimination. And number three is, let's not let the Labor Party, the Australian Federal Labor Party, off the hook. Let's not let them off the hook. Yeah, well, no, we cannot. We cannot. So, immoral and misleading language. There is nothing illegal about coming to Australia by boat. Nothing illegal about coming to Australia by boat. That is a lie, and it's actually immoral to use that language. But straight away, these people are placed in a category that is unworthy of our sympathy and our humanity, because they're illegals. Being held in detention centres, detention, that connotes that they're, they're somehow guilty of a crime because they're being detained. Shameful language, shameful characterisation, shameful lying by governments of all persuasions over many, many years. Australia's record on refugees is abysmal. We, I don't need to tell you that. I don't need to tell you that Australia's record is horrendous. We rank, according to one study I read, we rank 85th per capita on our refugee in, uh, intake. 85th, Australia is one of the wealthiest nations in the world one of the wealthiest nations in the world, and we rank 85th, that is mind-bogglingly shameful. And as Australians, we should not allow governments of all persuasions to do this in our name. That is shameful shame. I have no doubt that if these so-called illegals that are coming by boat were white Europeans, they would not be held for a day longer than they needed to in these centres. 
This speaks to absolute racism. These people have come from countries and that we do not identify with. They come from countries that we don't share a culture with or a language with. They look different to us, whatever that means. And so we do not give them the same level of respect and humanity as we no doubt would to white Europeans or white North Americans who would be arriving in Australia, or seeking to arrive in Australia, fleeing persecution and war and horrific conditions overseas. That is shameful. This has been a racist endeavour by governments of all persuasions. Don't be fooled. It is not just a coalition crime. Labor have also participated in this crime. And I'll come back to that in a second. We need to make this a federal, government, uh, a federal election issue. Let's not forget it was the Keating government. And regardless of what you believe about Paul Keating, he did many good things. But one thing he did that was really shameful, under his leadership, they established the concept of mandatory detention. The coalition governments since have actually taken it further and have established offshore detention, the most cruel regime possible. However, the coalition governments are so proud of this export. Australia is an export country. We've exported this concept around the world and the coalition government, ScoMo and his ministers, proudly point to the fact that other governments overseas look to Australia because of our cruel, inhumane offshore detention system. That is shameful. Nothing to be proud of. Shame on them. We need to stand very strong on this issue. This needs to be an election issue. We cannot allow this issue to be washed under, to be swept under the carpet any longer. We have an opportunity. We really have an opportunity. And I think the, I think public opinion has swung very firmly in favour of humane treatment of refugees. Let's capitalise on this. Let's make an election issue. Let's say no more inhumanity in our name. Thank you. Three, five, oh, one, two, five, go! No doubt as the women stood their ground against that first truck that rolled up to the picket line, they had some apprehension, but that was quickly to change. The first trucks that came that they were trying to stop going in, the trucks were TWU, the transport workers, they'd been winning pay rises and things. We said to them, go up and talk to the drivers, you know, explain why this is a picket, they can't go in. This huge truck in this little street in Brunswick coming up to the factory and he says, oh, no worries, mate, and turns the truck around and the women just, like, the, the level of confidence just skyrocketed. And You're listening to 3CR. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR, community radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. And you're back with Annie on 3CR's breakfast show. And uh, the we're going to move right along to uh, the uh, an excerpt from a, a youth on mic event that happened over the week. It was, as I said earlier, beautifully uh, organised. They did a great job. They got together as different um, politicians that are reputedly uh, representative of youth uh, concerns. So they had Amanda Wishmore from the Labor uh, Party. They had Jordan Steele-Johns from uh, the Greens. And there was a no-show Luke Howarth, who was the um, supposed uh, representative for youth 
in the Liberal Coalition uh, government. Uh, but he didn't have enough time to turn up to this event and uh, they visualised that by showing an empty chair with uh, a uh, light shining on it uh, when there was a, a group shot of the uh, politicians uh, on Zoom. And uh, But this little excerpt is uh, fascinating because it part of this whole uh, arrangement was for the night was to have young people, different individual young people, explain their lives and their concerns and to ask a question. And so what I've done is uh, taken a little bit of that, uh, the couple of the uh, statements, uh, testimonials from the young people and the answers that the uh, two politicians who were there uh, gave for your predilection. We're now going to hear from Ushant Jumarai from Democracy in Colour and an international student from Nepal. Going to hand it over to you, Ushant. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Ushant Kimere. Today I'm speaking from Dharag Nation. I'm a proud follower of Hinduism and a member of Nepalese community here in Australia. I'm here today to share my story and represent international students and people on temporary visa. To begin my story with great enthusiasm and passion, I came to Australia in mid-2018 with a view to finish my postgrad degree. I was getting support from back home to pay my expensive university fee, but it was putting excessive burden for my family and I to keep up with the payment. Then came the time when my path took downturn. Rather than studies, I would be more focused on work and other stuff. I would work multiple jobs and got into the vicious cycle of work and work just so that I can keep up with my uni payment, with, which is three times that a domestic student need to pay and that is required to be paid upfront. The expensive cost of living, including rent, grocery and paying for transport are separate. Even though I'm a student, I'm not eligible for student transportation concession card in New South Wales. Also working here and being able to return financial favor back to family also really motivated me and encouraged me to work more than I would have done normally. Uh, this then became a cycle where I would work and repeat and left everything else on the side note. I lost control over my life and my life seemed as if it was running on an autopilot mode where I was just existing but held no purpose and meaning. Uh, things were already not so great and then pandemic hit which made situation even harder. Pandemic hit to the hospitality industry is known to all. I remember losing my hospitality job like many others. Since this was not predicted, even in dreams, I was not prepared to take it all out of a sudden. Well, no one was. I was working in a small cafe as a cafe all-rounder for almost two years. With no customer coming, owner was not able to sustain me. After initial week of working with greatly reduced hours, I was told I won't be employed till things get better. Well, I was still fortunate enough where I had another job to sustain myself. But unlike me, a lot of others were not. I lost my job, but the expenses were same, even higher. University fee was still the same and even increased in some university, even though none of us could attend the classes or use the facility in person. Initially, I was not given any form of support from anywhere except for a few grocery vouchers from university. Before pandemic, I would have received the support from back home, but pandemic made it equally difficult for them, and I was forced to manage my struggle here alone. In order to reduce the rental expenses, few other friends moved in with us. The two-bedroom apartment that was shared by three of us before was now being shared by six of us. 
it was the time when COVID was at peak with no vaccines and uh, no one knew how to deal with COVID. Social distancing and masks were only available tool to battle COVID. But for six of us living in tiny two-bedroom apartment, it was not quite possible to practice appropriate social distancing measure. One person getting infected would have put all of us into the threat and made it hard for all of us to go to work to continue paying for rent, meal, and university fee. Uh, what hurts most was being told by some to go back and go home. Many of us have been here for years and established our life here, have our own communities, and are close to finishing our studies. This was indeed painful for us. It reminded us that we don't belong here and aren't accepted in this society. Though I feel I had a bit of a bumpy ride along the way, I still consider myself privileged because I have heard stories of workplace exploitation, mental health issues, evictions, financial distress, drug abuse, and many more. Uh, I was speaking to another fellow international student, Bursa, who said, uh, though these things are faced by many, international students are facing it privately. I recently heard from another international student that international students are invisible part of the community. We are here, but we are still going unnoticed. Well, we make a noticeable chunk in few industries like aged care, hospitality, cleaning, etc. We stood with every Australian during pandemic, during bushfire, during flood. And while we are here, everything we do is for greater Australian good. And we see ourselves as a proud member of Australian community. We don't desire anything beyond reach. All we seek is love, support, and respect, and support when necessary. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing, Ashant. Um, our first question is for Senator Steele John. So given the challenges we have heard from Ashant, who represents the international student community that holds a big population of young people in Australia, Senator Stiljohn, what will you do to support international students and people on temporary visas who have often been left out of support and left out of the conversation during crisis moments? It's a fantastic question. Um, the Greens have a, a really clear position on this. We believe that uh, whether you're an international student, whether you are a person that is uh, seeking asylum and refugee status, whether you're on a temporary uh, protection visa, um, you should have a, a, a set of basic uh, rights and securities uh, while you are here in Australia. And those rights and securities should extend to uh, healthcare, employment, social security, um, the basics of housing uh, and enough uh, support so that you can have the food to eat and the water to drink and be able to live a social life while you are here in Australia. Um, and it really frustrates me and saddens me deeply um, to hear the, the story that we've just heard um, because it is such a common one. Um, during the pandemic, international students uh, and people on temporary protection visas were treated terribly. Um, and that has continued uh, with disaster relief programs in Queensland, for instance, and New South Wales in relation to the floods, uh, leaving our institution, uh, international students once again. Um, so what we have to see, uh, and, and this is where we really need to, to name something that can be in some ways uh, uncomfortable, but is utterly necessary to understanding what is happening here. Um, we need to talk about racism. Uh, 
Uh, and and the, the way in which these policies and the way that they are structured are acceptable um, in, in this country and to these governments uh, because it, that you can get away with treating somebody from a different country in Australia um, in a way that you wouldn't uh, get away with treating somebody that was a citizen. And that is not okay. Absolutely unacceptable, particularly when you consider that international students are often paying hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to study here in Australia. Um, if you're doing that, you should be able to expect a basic level of support and respect um, in the political system. Thank you so much, Senator, um, and for also acknowledging the roots of why discrimination occurs in international student communities. We're going to pass the mic over to Minister Richworth. Um, so many of us on the call today have friends, classmates and neighbours that are international students that have struggled with many of the challenges mentioned by Oshan. What will you do differently to support international students or people on temporary visas if elected? Look, um, thank you very much for sharing your story. And it is a story I heard a lot uh, during the pandemic. Um, and it was shameful that the um, federal government, um, ha they had the, the legislative ability to support um, our international students. And it was left often to state governments, to charities uh, and to local councils to pick up the slack. And that just wasn't good enough. Um, look, going forward, I think you've highlighted a, a number of different issues, but one of the ones that really sticks out to me is the way that many international students, because they're on temporary visas, because uh, they don't have a lot of the protections afforded by citizenship, are really exploited in workplaces around this country. Whether it's been some of the shocking stories we've heard around wage theft um, and around companies knowing underpaying um, international workers because they don't think that they can enforce their rights or know their rights. So Labor has been very clear we will we'll criminalise wage theft. Um, the other element which I've, I hear the story and, uh, from a lot of international students is around sort of employee-like work, things like driving for Uber, for example, where uh, people aren't able to actually earn a minimum wage because of the way that that, 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 they, that that work is treated. So there's a lot of, I don't want to go into all the details, but there is a lot of changes we can make to our industrial relations system that make sure that gig work, that um, fair wages are paid and that there are protections, uh, particularly for our most vulnerable workers, as you write said, have held us up during the pandemic, did the cleaning, uh, were on the frontline services, we need to make sure that they're not exploited in the workplace. Thank you, Shadow Minister Rishworth, um, and also your ongoing commitments to uh, criminalising wage theft and also Jordan Stilljohn in acknowledging the question and answering that. Uh, a special thank you to Ashant for sharing your experiences and your story with all of us here tonight. And thank you for responses. I will pass it on to Alex now. Um, we'll now hear our final story from Bailey Riley. Bailey is Environment Officer at the University of Technology in Sydney and a member of the National Union of Students. So welcome, Bailey, and over to you. Thanks, Alex. Um, I'm Bailey. I'm a trans woman here tonight to share my story about living on Centrelink 
and I'm just hoping to create some positive change for students. Um, our welfare system is woefully inadequate to support students, whether it be the $40 a day average that forces students to live below the poverty line, the fact that you are not considered fully independent from your parents until the age of 22, or that if you come from a household where your total income is above is over $56,000, you won't be able to receive adequate welfare until you hit that arbitrary age of independence. Our current Centrelink system forces students to work for hours a week just to have the income needed to put a roof over their head and a meal on the table, also while focusing on their full-time studies. Student welfare needs to be a recognised priority of any future government. I first experienced the difficulties of the Centrelink system when I moved to Sydney in early 2019 to pursue my education. It took over a month for my ad study plan to be processed, during which I had moved into a share house and begun paying rent, utilities and all the other expenses that come with living out of home. After all these costs, I only had $50 a week left over from my ad study payment to spend on food. My mum, who was also living under the Centrelink payment system, as well as being a foster carer for multiple kids, was somehow able to give me small amounts of money here or there to help fill the gap in my income at her personal expense. It was a difficult time with almost no chance for me to ever spend money on things that weren't required to live. Until I was able to find a retail job after searching for over eight months and going through multiple interview processes. But I was comparatively lucky to one of my roommates, whose single mother of four earned just over the household income limit. This meant that my housemate was completely unable to receive any support from Centrelink. No matter how many times they submitted a claim, rang up Centrelink, or even got their mother to find the time to call as well, they wouldn't be able to receive any support until they reached the age of 22. This greatly impacted their life, forcing them to cut down on their study and try and find work in the city job market that was not at all accommodating to the disability that forced them into job searching with their specific requirements in mind while also not being eligible for any income support, including the DSP. The COVID crisis was ironically the only time that I felt completely free to take my study seriously. The doubling of my ab study at the start of the pandemic was an almost instant improvement to my financial circumstances, allowing me not to have to rely on my family for monetary support. It allowed me to buy healthy meals, allowed me to go and enjoy the occasional night out once pubs and restaurants reopened, and allowed me to exist without the everlasting fear of not having enough money for a meal. I believe this should be the bare minimum living standard for any student or anyone on welfare payments for that matter. We should punish those about wealth for studying and sure as hell shouldn't punish those during a hard time by forcing them into the below poverty line standard that job seeker or study and ab study payments currently sit at. Maybe these payments wouldn't be such an issue if students had any opportunity to live in affordable housing, if we didn't have to deal with the rising price of groceries and general cost of living if we were offered actual, affordable, or even fee-free education that many of our politicians representing us had the joy of experiencing. But none of this is the case right now. So I echo mine and many others when I ask that those who want to represent us lower the age of independence and raise the rate. My uh, question is to Shadow Risworth. Given that the Labour Party has today announced that they will not raise the rate of job seeker in their first budget, what will you do to help students struggle in welfare payments as they deal with the rising cost of living, rising cost of rent, and rising cost of education if Labor were to win government in May? Thank you. Thank you so much. So, thank you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> well, good. We'll pass um, directly over to you, Shadow Minister. Thank you. Sorry. And look, thank you um, for sharing your experience. And I, I do understand it is incredibly tough. Um, I, 
when I first got elected to Parliament and rest assured I did have to pay for my education while I recognise a lot of people uh, haven't in the Parliament. Um, the age of independence was 26. John Howard put it back up to 26 uh, and it was Julia Gillard that slowly uh, tried to bring it down um, at, over time. Look, these are, are big challenges um, and they're challenges that... Uh, Labor is very aware of one of the things we want to do in those issues that you spoke about, whether that is in housing or cost to see a doctor is make some structural long term changes um, when it, in those issues so that we're not just constantly playing catch up uh, with the current system that we're actually trying to invest in in changing the system. So. As we've announced, we want to invest more in public housing, affordable housing uh, for people. Uh, our investments around um, transitioning to a clean energy future actually show to bring down the cost of energy. Um, and areas around childcare, and that's not uh, um, a lot of young people, but some young people do uh, need childcare to be able to study. Um, and we want to really reduce that. That is that is good for the economy, but also good for people that rely on it. So there's a number of long-term structural things that we want to change. We've announced um, free fee take places, more university places. These are certainly things that are on the top of the mind. But if we don't start investing in some long-term change now, uh, we won't turn the ship round for the future. Thank you for your response. Um, we'll give Senator Steele-John the opportunity to also share any reflections on um, the question and issues that Bailey has raised. Thank you. And thanks so much, Bailey. I share your frustration with Labor's announcement that they won't raise the rate. I, I feel, yeah, really really frustrated about that because what that effectively amounts to is a commitment to maintain uh, poverty because the the rate of youth allowance the rate of job seeker we know uh, is below the poverty line and is not something that you can actually live on um, and I really hear what you've said to us uh, this afternoon that actually COVID for you that brief period where job seeker was increased was a wonderful moment in time because you felt like you could just breathe again and not be filled with anxiety and panic about where the next meal is going to come from, whether you're going to be able to get your hair cut, how you're going to pay the power bill. Um, the Greens want to see action in this area. We want to see at least $88 a day uh, in youth allowance, in job seeker, the abolition of mutual obligations um, and the return at, of the welfare system to a space where it actually is focused on ensuring people have the support that they need. Um, as students, uh, we want to uh, make sure that university and TAFE are free again uh, and to abolish all currently existent uh, student debt because that debt held by people uh, is an immoral debt. You should never have had to pay. Uh, to go to university or TAFE uh, when politicians of generations past either did not pay, went for free, or indeed went at a severely reduced rate. Um, so those are just a couple of the things that we want to do, as well as supporting the National Union of Students in the fantastic work that you do uh, and bringing back a culture of student unionism um, to Australian campuses where it is so urgently needed. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia.
Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when a memory lapse became the critical ideological issue that will determine the next government. Keeping us riveted to the set pieces of electoral nothings to add to the wall-to-wall coverage identical every day of trained killing. What exciting times. And we did hear the Minister for Being Offensive and Trained Killing Constable Peter Duffer urge us to return the government based on its performances these past three years. Like, you know, like, leaving us to think maybe Pete wants them to lose. While one of Big Supremo Scuttlebin Morlash son, a.k.a. Scummo's, well echoed by the whole coalition team's most pertinent policy statement is that Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Anthony Albing Uzi has no experience as Big Supremo because he has never been Big Supremo. And how many times were you Big Supremo before you became Big Supremo, Scummo? I was close enough to be able to stab them in the back before they knew what hit them. Well, he's clearly more qualified. Although our point about avoiding the news or even leaving the country for a few weeks was destroyed day one when Anthony had that nation-defining memory lapse, stuffed up those figures and scummo leapt on this as proof, Anthony is not fit to be Big Supremo. And Anthony admitted he was wrong and said this proved he is fit to be Big Supremo because scummo never admits to a mistake but always blames someone or something else and thus... Day one ended with the exchange of big, innovative ideas and exciting vision we can expect every one of the remaining 35 days. 35 days, which we all know is going to seem like 35 months. Although at least the government gets its language right, like announcing $220 million to continue the destruction of our native forests. 6.6 mil of which Scummo said would assist the caring business class connect with cutting-edge research. Sadly, after the cutting has been done, and would also address problems with supply chain sores. Uh, sorry, supply chains. See, tell it as it is. Interesting that, as Scummo and the coalition commit to destroying native forests, their solution to the coal bit of coalition is to plant more trees without reducing the emissions one iota. And we can be sure they'll make sure all these reports of the offset schemes being offset scams, allowing the polluters to profit even more from pollution, are investigated and fixed up. Yet there's really nothing to fix up because there may not be such a thing as climate change, even if Anthony felt a very cool climate change from Monday morning to Monday night. And look, not knowing the unemployment figure didn't prevent him announcing an important policy for the unemployed. He will do nothing for them. Leave the pitiful doll pitiful. So following last week's announcement abandoning attacks on family trusts, which some people ludicrously think are tools for the filthy rich to avoid paying any tax at all, Anthony can boast the balance he promises, a policy for the poorest of the poor and a policy for the filthiest rich of the filthy rich. And anyway... Anthony anyway, it was the doll bludgers who got me into trouble in the first place. They, they can't have it both ways. 
Of course, the filthy rich don't need a family trust to avoid paying any tax. Take our fun, fun, fun entertainment behemoths, the casinos. Following all the criminal activity exposed by sundry inquiries into Jamie Puker's Crook Casino, the current NSW inquiry into the Star Avoider Casino shows they're running neck and neck in the ripping off stakes with a headline this week, Star may have failed to pay state taxes. Come on, may have? It's odds-on. A far safer bet than the odds at the casinos themselves, where it's odds-on, the house will win. All that lovely, lovely tax-free income. After all, it was Jamie's dad, Lord Kerry of Waterhouse, who famously said, Anyone who pays their taxes is mad, bloody mad. And the Mormon church, more money for us so-called church, has been sprung ripping trillions off the public purse by siphoning all donations and compulsory tithes by its congregations into some charitable fund, meaning those donors can avoid taxes they otherwise have to pay. All very well, charity, caring for others. All very well, if a bloody whistleblower hadn't pointed out it doesn't operate any charities nor donate any of the tax-free lovely, lovely income to any charity. Showing charity, the government thus far has thought it not worth worrying about when there's real rip-off merchants to monitor like doll bludgers and climate activists and evil, evil trade unions and lazy, avaricious workers. Like our own state forest lot, whose role in life is to hand native forests to the Chainsaw Brigade, which hired a private detective to spy on an activist whose crime was to think native forests and their ecology should be preserved, a terrorist with no concern whatever for the great economic benefits of tearing down those forests, which otherwise would just stand there doing absolutely nothing like rivers which just flow along doing absolutely nothing. And amid the myriad of government appointments on the eve of the election of, of to put it kindly, like-minded appointees and even extending appointments that wouldn't have run out until mid-term next government anyway, but whew, why risk the chance of a socialist government putting the same caring business class people into those, into those positions to prove it is not biased? And anyway, union bosses and lazy avaricious workers and environmentalists and goody goodies generally are incapable of carrying out these roles. Superannuation, a perfect example where they okay, perform better than the major financial institutions, but only because they cheat by not charging exorbitant fees. Absolute anathema to the greatest little economic order of them all. But we've diverted. Rivers doing nothing. Well, one of the appointments in the last days was by Fossil Minister Keith Pitpony to the $450,000 a year position as CEO of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. Andrew McConville, real name, from the Troubluwazi Petroleum Production and Exploration Profits Association, who earlier also worked in the major agricultural sector, so he could be guaranteed to put the environmental interests of the Murray-Darling first. While recognising, of course, there's no economic benefit in just letting the river flow, like it flowed for eons before 1788. Not quite flowing as well as it could, the ocean at Varanos Island, 75k off the Pilbara coast in western Trublawasi, after an oil spill on a Santosas, the Prophet's oil and gas facility, exposed the negativity and anti-Trublawasi attitudes of these environmentalists.
Saint Tossas the prophets explained quite properly it was a light sheen on the sea surface covering a small area. The condensate evaporated naturally within 24 hours and the impact to the environment is negligible. There, perfectly logical explanation, and that's where the matter should have been let rest, done and dusted. Okay, okay, the transport department then announced the light sheen small area bit was about 25,000 litres of light sheen small area, and some bloody whistleblower again said Santosas had known there was a weakness in the pipe that burst but did nothing about it, and worse, Maggie Wood of the Western Trublawazi Conservation Council displayed a total lack of respect for a great corporation like Santosas by declaring with no proof whatever that in no way can a 25,000 litre oil spill be described as negligible. It took place in an area highly important for marine biodiversity with vulnerable turtle populations. God, they always dig that sort of stuff up, don't they? They're as if Santos us wouldn't care about those things. And, and worse, worse, she then twisted the knife with, this is the same Santos us, the prophets, which less than 10 years ago was allowed to go unpunished for a 250,000 litre oil spill in Queensland, only narrowly avoiding a widespread contamination of nearby water systems. The best we can say about that twisting of a knife into a great corporation is that she has something in common with Scummo. Oh, not in attacking the great corporation bit, the, the knife bit when they don't see it coming. And it gets even worse for poor Santosas, a wonderful plan bringing huge economic benefits to all of us to develop its Barossa gas project northwest of Trublawazi and pipe the gas 300k through the TWC to an LNG plant in Darwin. A loans deal with a Korean bank and an insurance company all but stitched up and Santosas gets stitched up itself by these economy-wrecking Tiwi Islanders who have taken out an injunction in a South Korean court to block the loan on the specious grounds that Santosas has not consulted them. Tiwi Islanders, get on with playing football, which you're bloody good at, and stop interfering in business matters that are no concern of yours. Ah, well, maybe a small concern of theirs, but the, the, the gas should contribute to their island sinking further, and so it won't be a problem for them anyway, long term, or maybe even short term. But amid all this gloom, let's finish on a positive note. Caring Business Class Relations Minister Makaya Kosh, the workers, will attempt to revive the Caring Business Class Relations legislation sunk in the previous government. The government is committed to our policies that allow businesses to create jobs, improve productivity and drive wages growth. Important reforms like scrapping that better off overall test, give the boot the boot. Important little reforms like allowing hospitality and retail workers to work extra hours without overtime payments and lots of similar benefits to workers who, along with evil unions, just can't recognise that all their caring employers and their caring employers' government care about is solving the problem of slow wages growth. will not accept that the only way to get wages growth is to slash wages and conditions. When, as Pete Seeger wrote, when will they ever learn? 
Finally, on the good news front, the wise egalitarians on the High Court bench ruled this week that the evil construction unions and their members can be fined the maximum amount for even the most minor of breaches because of their evil law-breaking history, like insisting illegally that workers on construction sites who enjoy the wages and conditions the unions have won should wait for it, wait for it, sit down, this is so outrageous, should be in the union. Contrary to the inalienable God-given right of workers not to join a union. Congratulations to their honours and the smash the construction union's jackboot commission for their commitment to the law. And let's hope this Easter, Michaela and their honours and the jackboots commission can put an end to the sickening way evil unions and lazy avaricious workers so crucify their caring employers. I want to add to the cheer... 35 days to go. Good morning. Yeah, 35 days to go. Uh, you're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast. Uh, before we go to the last uh, little uh, excerpt I've got, I've got uh, an excerpt from a, a, a great session that was put on by Jacobin and um, the Emergency Workplace Organising that's what they call themselves. I don't know how you can... It's an organisation, so it's EWO, but it, EWO means Emergency Workplace Organising, an American thing. Anyway, uh, they put it on a great webinar that uh, had uh, the Amazon Labor Union talking about their grassroots campaign, and that included uh, Chris Smith, uh, Michelle Valentin Neves, and Angelica... Maldonado, uh, Maldonado. Um, so I'm going to play a little bit of that and you can actually get the whole piece from uh, the uh, Jacobean uh, YouTube channel. But uh, this is a little bit, of, it's hot off the press. But before we do, just to remind you that uh, this is the Marxist Conference weekend and uh, they're actually going to be speaking to some a worker from that particular campaign as well this morning. There's a couple of days to go if you, you can get a day ticket. They're fascinating. I went like yesterday, uh, enjoyed every minute of it. It's a fantastic uh, venue down in Williamstown. Uh, it's at the back of uh, Seaworks and you can see the sea. You can see uh, the, um, uh, the Sea Shepherd's ship and you can see the skyline of the city from the other side of the bay. It's quite a fantastic affair. And when it went into the evening and there was the evening session, which was outside on a big screen, like a big uh, drive-in screen, it was absolutely captivating, I'll have to say. So two more days to go. You can buy a day ticket, um, look it up online, go down there. It's fantastic. Anyway, this is the last piece of the program today. And uh, coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. I always said it from the beginning, uh, food is the way to the heart. You know, as simple as that. You want, you want to bring people together, you feed them. It's just uh, like any Thanksgiving meal. We made Thanksgiving several times throughout the year, not just on Thanksgiving. We, we had potlucks, we had barbecues, we had bonfires, as you mentioned. Um, we, we just, we rejoiced over food. And it, it wasn't really a rejoicing, it was just... Um, more of um, uh, conversations, once again. Um, it hadn't always had to deal with just unionizing. Um, we, we just brought, made a space for workers to feel comfortable. And once you got workers feeling comfortable, you have their attention. 
And and now they look forward to seeing you every day. They're like, oh man, where's the bonfire at? Oh man, where's the AOU? Yeah, we're not there. So when you start to get that type of feedback, you know that you're 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 doing something correct. And um, you know, that's why we fed our coworkers as much as possible and we still continue to do so because we know food is the way to the heart. And Amazon obviously uh, lacks that. You know, they're the Grinch who stole Christmas and you know, we're the good guys. Yeah. Angie Michelle. Um, Go for it. Yeah, definitely the food. I remember the day I joined, I sat by the tent and I had um, a slice of pumpkin pie and <laughs> some snacks, right? And so um, I think that um, food is definitely the way to the heart. And then also um, being considerate of the different cultures that were in Amazon. And so um, targeting, uh, you know, different ethnicities and nationalities and actually taken into consideration that we all came from different places. So, um, you know, at one point we were serving African fried rice at one point, um, you know, uh, one of our team members, Cass, he had um, got empanadas from um, a Spanish restaurant. And I think that us, you know, having these different ideas that targeted different cultures um, whether we were a part of that culture or not, um, it definitely let the workers know that we were thinking of them um, in, in more ways than one. And then also um, when we had these potlucks and stuff, music too. Like, so we made it, we made it enjoyable and we made it fun while getting the information out about what the ALU, um, how the ALU wanted to benefit us as the employees of Amazon. Michelle, yeah. do you have any non-food related? Um, we got the food. Non-food related. Um, definitely. I think uh, organizing for me uh, was fun. Um, I enjoyed it very much. Um, what I did is I tried to like single out people that no one else is really speaking to. Like, let's say someone that's like really, really quiet and you see them and they don't speak to anyone single out like that one person. Um, also people that have like disabilities, there's people that, you know, are in wheelchairs. Um, there's people that have, you know, they're can't see very well. There's all type of people. There's people that are deaf or they're mute. And I would try to talk to those people also because sometimes those people are kind of ignored, um, especially by management. And that's a problem. Um, that's inside of Amazon and that there's a huge disconnection between management and the workers. Um, and that's a complaint across the board with every single worker. It's like there's this huge disconnection where you feel like you're not even in the same building, um, you know, with your managers. Like there's there's no conversation. There's no good morning. How are you? How are you feeling today? I mean, none of that. So there's really like no sense of like a work culture inside of the building. So it's like you have to create your own work culture. And then for me, it was a little bit easier and it, and it was fun because I've already been at that facility for three years. Um, So I pretty much already knew a bunch of people and I was like a familiar face. Because you would see me either, you know, coming in the building or out of the building or you see me in the break room. You see me, you know, upstairs, downstairs in the elevator. So you're like, OK, this is a familiar face. I've seen this woman, you know, many a times and she's with the AOU and, I've, and she's a familiar face. She's been here for a while. So they would feel um, for the most part, they would feel comfortable speaking to me 
um, when I would go up to people and, you know, try to speak to them about the union and try to see, you know, what, you know, they, if they're for the union, if they're against it, let's have a discussion, um, not try to be like too forceful, like, okay, you have to vote yes, 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 yes. Like you have to say yes, like, because that's what management was doing. They were telling everyone to vote no. And I, I didn't want to come off with that same kind of energy. Like I wanted to just be like, okay, let's discuss it. Let's, you know, if you if you're with it, if you're not, let's discuss it and why and you know what what can we do to try to persuade you? That's really helpful. I have a follow up question. Where where did you have those conversations? Because you know, everywhere, what, what, yeah. Can you just des describe that? Because it seems like it might be scary having that inside the fulfillment yeah. center or the warehouse. Can you just talk through? Were people scared about talking? How, how did you break through that fear factor? um people were definitely scared about talking but again like we have our own separate work culture from management because like i said there's that disconnection there so there's a lot going on as far as people that have been i'm speaking of people that have been there for the long term like people that have been with amazon over a year because the thing is is that amazon creates this environment where they don't expect you to last over a year if you make it over a year as a level one associate, it's like a miracle has happened because they really don't expect you to last that long. So they're like, yeah, you know, I give this person maybe a year, a year and a half tops and, and they're out of here. So when you're there for like two or three years and somehow you find some way to flourish in this kind of an environment, you know, the, the managers really don't realize it because again, there's this connection. So we would speak everywhere. I'm like, in the staircase, going up and down the stairs, in, in the elevator, in the parking lot, um, in front of the building, on the bus, um, at St. George, at the St. George um, Ferry Terminal, because I take the bus to St. George and then I get on the Staten Island Railroad. Or there would be some people that I actually saw in random places in Staten Island. Like I would see uh, people at Costco's, on Forest Avenue, like outside of the facility. Um, and it just like the conversation just happens anywhere at any time, pretty much. Thanks. Uh, that was all really helpful to you all. Appreciate that. <laughs> so we'll move on. Touching on one of the pieces you mentioned earlier, it, Amazon, like most workplaces these days, uh, there's a lot of divisions, right? Uh, people are fractured along a, a whole different range of lines. So I was hoping you could all talk about that and give some details about what were the divisions you saw? How did you uh, work to overcome them? And could you describe a specific conversation about maybe somebody who you had to work on a while to, to try to get them to come over? Um, and maybe they were opposed or really hesitant and, and what it took to move them. Um, yeah, so that's the question. Would anyone want to start us off? Um, yeah, I could Chris, you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. You know, um, well, you know, Amazon tried to uh, make this a racial thing in the beginning. You know, they had one of their union busters, Brad Moss, who came from Alabama. Um, he was one of the first ones to be exposed because he talked to a worker, a group of workers, predominantly white, and uh, one Hispanic woman in there in the group. And um, he said some racial mark remarks about the ALU. He called us a bunch of thugs. Um, he called us a bunch of Black Lives Matter protesters uh, with no experience. And, you know, uh, he tried to make it a racial thing. He said that, um, you know, he came from Alabama and it was the union wasn't no big deal. Um, 
And, you know, once again, that we're, we're a bunch of thugs outside, you know, outside the building. And they, uh, Amazon ran with that. You know, they don't stop the rumors once they start. I can guarantee that. There's nobody in there saying, oh, no, that's not true. Once the rumors start to spread, um, it's like high school. They get to everybody's word of mouth. It's real fast. And, you know, we noticed that they tried to make paint us out as, um, you know, once again, um, just people that just had no experience that just came off the streets that's trying to steal everybody's money with union dues. Um, even to the point where they even told everybody that I'm going to buy a Lamborghini. That was the latest one. They even made a sign with an ALU car decal on the sign with somebody um, driving this convertible, which I guess was supposed to be me. And um, they also, uh, you know, Michelle and, and Angie can speak on this as well. They had signs in there um, with, you know, that were very racist. They had union busting signs that had, you know, people wearing their hat backwards. Um, you know, wear a darker color than the other uh, cartoons that they use. And um, it was just very racist what they were trying to do and still continue to do as well because the union busting hasn't stopped. Angie, Michelle, do you, do you want to add on that piece? Yeah, I mean, um, well, basically, uh, one of the ways that we, you know, um, try to bring everyone together although it was it wasn't really an easy task um just create our own culture within the ALU and you know everyone thinks like we have like these these um tactics that are worth thousands of dollars but basically we're just being ourselves and so um you know connecting with the workers um um there was times where, you know, we would sit outside by the bus stop and play loud music. We would connect with the young workers that way. Or I re I even remember one time, um, an older woman inside the building, I call her mom now, <laughs> um, you know, I, I brought her tea, we sat down and talked. And so just connecting with the workers anyway, we would treat our own family. Um, we would treat our grandmother, we would treat our uncle, we would treat our, our brother and our sister and our mom. Um, that's the way we kind of got through that age gap thing. Um, even with different cultures, you know, um, having organizers that spoke different languages, even if it was one organizer, um, it could, because in theory, <laughs> there weren't hundreds of us. There were only like about 15 towards the end. And so, um, it it was very, it was a very tedious, um, you know, organizing ideal. However, what the ALU did and how they created, how we created our own culture, it, it worked for us and it worked for us in a way where if you didn't hear about the ALU, you still, you still seen who we were. And so when we approached you, you knew that we weren't like, you know, a third party at this point. You, at this point, you know that the captive audience meetings were just lies. And at this point, you knew that whatever we were telling you, um, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't information that wasn't true. Um, if anyone was to give out misinformation, it was Amazon. And so, um, yeah, just just building our own culture. And that's how um, that's how I, I seen it. Yeah. Angie, can I ask a follow up question on the youth piece? Um it seems like a lot of ALU core organizers are pretty young. And so I was just wondering uh, if you 
if, if that's true, if you have a sense of why that is, and then how were you able to connect to older workers? Because that could both be a strength and maybe a limitation, right? If people see it as just like a young crew of workers. How yeah. did you deal with the age uh, issue? Um, well, I would say the reason that, you know, the average age of a ALU member is 27 years old. Um, however, we have people that are 50 years old, maybe maybe a little bit older, and then we have people that are probably like um, 20 years old, right? But um, I think the reason for that is there was a lot of people who, you know, they wanted to get involved with the ALU, but because Amazon, um, the pay is not as well as they make it seem. A lot of the older people, they do have some jobs to provide for their family. So, you know, with that, it was only so much that they can do, um, you know. Sometimes they come in the break room and they would help us talk to our coworkers. But as far as coming on their off days and dedicating the time that we were dedicating, it was very difficult for them. Um, I've spoken to many of my coworkers who are like, you know, I, I really want to organize, but I have a second job. Um, I don't have anyone to babysit my child. You know, um, I have to take care of my grandmother. And so, you know, and, and, in theory, the, another thing is that if these people need to maintain their second jobs, we still have to fight so that maybe one day they wouldn't need a second job as much as they do now. Thanks. Michelle, uh, can you add in on divisions, whether it's the racism that you're subjected to or youth or any of these things? What, what's your take on divisions how you overcome So um, as far as um, the active or the captive union busting classes, um, they were so racist that it was like out of this world because they even had like the figures that they would have, like let's say they would have like a manager was like a bright yellow and orange figure. And then the AOU uh, representative would be like a dark purple with a dark blue figure. Um, and I saw that like on the screen and I was like really shocked by it. Um, and you have to understand that, uh, you know, what happened is, is that that actually completely backfired on Amazon because it's like you're showing us these race, racist images, but the majority of your workers there are like the, the majority are like 70 to 80 percent African-American. Am I correct, Angie and Chris? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like 30 percent of Hispanic, 35 percent black, you know, so altogether right. we're talking majority black and brown workers. Exactly. So when you're when you're do when you so, show something racist like that to people of color, because even myself, like I, you know, when people see me, they just see like a very fair skinned woman. But I do identify as a woman of color, first and foremost. And I do have people in my family, like my brother.